Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. In the place of our usual host, Jonathan Sakia, this episode will be hosted by me, Evgenia Kutsuki, the editor at EMJ. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Peter Arkwright, who is Senior Lecturer in Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the Lydia Becker Institute of Immunology and Inflammation at the University of Manchester and a consultant for the Department of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the Manchester University Foundation NHS Trust in the UK. Peter has published more than 190 peer-reviewed articles with collaborators from around the world, and he actually began his career in Australia, studying at the University of Western Australia in Perth, where he graduated as a doctor in 1982. He went on to win the Sir Robert Menzies Memorial Scholarship to study at the University of Oxford in the UK, where he completed his PhD and a four-year postdoctoral research program in the Nobel Prize-winning Department of Biochemistry. Peter then went on to train as a pediatric allergist and immunologist and set up the Tertiary Pediatric Allergy and Immunology Service in the northwest of England. Peter's research focuses on translating and discovering new immune diseases that are associated with propensity in viruses and bacteria. His interests also lie with basic and translational aspects of atopic dermatitis, and he's working as part of a multidisciplinary team that looks after children with complex infections, allergies, atopic dermatitis, and primary immunodeficiencies. Peter lectures and chairs sessions at conferences around the world and has presented his work across all continents. As a globally respected clinician, Peter is the recipient of numerous awards and scholarships, the latest being a prize for his oral presentation on peanut reactivity at the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in 2018. Peter, welcome to this podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So I would like to start by asking, what was it that inspired you to specialise in allergy and immunology, and particularly in children? Okay, so it's a great question. Um, throughout my life, um, I've always wanted to explore the unknown. Um, and Oscar Wilde once said that facts are the enemy of the truth. So I've always been trying to scrutinise the facts in search of the truth. So to start with, I should say that as well as a medical doctor, as you've already said, I've um, used my 40 year career to not only work in the hospital system, but also for the university. And in so doing, I've not only practiced medicine, but tried to develop and progress medicine um, from where we are at a particular point in time um, to develop new treatments and new diagnoses. So in answer to your question, why immunology and allergy? Um, when I was at medical school in the 70s and early 80s, understanding how the immune defense against infection worked um, was still in its infancy. We understood very little about why some people developed and died from severe infections, and also developed um, certain immune problems such as arthritis and diabetes and inflammatory bowel disease and even cancers. And now, um, 40 years on, 
um, there are about 400 specific um, genetically inherited immune diseases that are known. Um, as well as immunology, allergy um, 40 years ago was in its infancy. Um, and it struck me that more than most areas of medicine, the opportunities in the field of immunology and allergy were ripe for discovery and progress. And that's what I've tried to do in my career. So the other part of your question is why children? Um, and regarding immune diseases, immune diseases are often most severe in children. And therefore, understanding and treating children typically offers key um, understanding points to how to treat diseases best um, because these diseases are so severe in children. Furthermore, in allergies, um, the, there's a slight difference. Many allergic diseases start in early childhood and in infancy. For instance, eczema and some food allergies. And therefore, understanding what initiates these diseases in the very young is most likely to provide the best opportunity um, to help prevent more severe disease in adulthood. And an example is peanut allergy, where we used to think that avoiding peanuts until the age of five was best. And we now realize that actually introducing peanut containing foods in infancy in the weaning diet um, helps to prevent the development of peanut allergy rather than protect against it. So hopefully I've given you some insights in terms of why I've ended up where I am um, working in children's allergy and immunology. Yes, of course. These are very inspiring words. And uh, it must be very fulfilling having witnessed all these progress uh, during your time as an allergist and to know that you have made a contribution to this knowledge in search of the truth, as you said. Uh, that is fascinating. And what I also find fascinating is the U-turn in um, peanut allergy uh, management in children and how the approach has completely changed. Uh, so this is what knowledge gives us more information and better direction. So um, you have published ex extensively on allergic diseases, uh, for example, asthma and atopic dermatitis. And um, in 2014, you were interviewed about curing conditions such as allergies and arthritis by reversing the effects of a gene, uh, CTPS1. Just to use this as an opportunity to uh, discuss in a broader context about the field. First of all, has this been a fruitful path? And secondly, could you maybe provide a summary of what have been the most exciting findings and key targets for future therapies in the field? Okay, so you're right. Um, this disease, which seems to have arisen in the northwest of England, um, a number of centuries ago um, was a key point in certainly my career. And not only that, but the development of the whole immunology and allergy service um, in the northwest of England. Um, and CTPS1 deficiency, not many people know much about it, but it's a very rare 
immune problem where children are usually absolutely fine until they come across the chickenpox or the glandular fever virus. And when they do come across these viruses, as they will because they're so common, um, they either die of the acute infection or develop leukaemia um, and die of the secondary leukaemia. And actually the defining point um, was the tragic death of Amy Drew, um, a little five-year-old girl who had this particular condition and developed severe chickenpox and also developed severe glandular fever and died of leukaemia. And it was the inspiration of her parents, um, Suzanne and Ian, um, that actually led to the founding of the Immunology and Allergy Service in Manchester in the Northwest. And that was certainly a defining moment for our service. And as I was a fledgling um, doctor who wanted to work in the field, it allowed opportunities. So it, it brought um, the families together with the doctors and the nurses and also the administrators of the hospital and the academics working in the university. They brought everyone together to try and help prevent further deaths um, as happened with Amy by um, developing a department um, and a service that was able to understand and treat these really complex, rare conditions. It not only brought us together in um, Manchester, but brought us together with people around the UK. And also I established incredibly um, good and lifelong um, collaborations with colleagues in Paris, in New York, and also in Sydney. Um, and it's been very a very fruitful collaboration, not only from um, us as doctors, but also um, from the interaction between doctors and patients. So regarding um, the most exciting findings and key targets for future therapies, um, these are multiple. And I'm sure many in the listening to this podcast have heard about the developments in genetic diagnosis, um, particularly in relation to new generation sequencing, which has allowed us to speed up um, the sequencing of our genetic code from what used to take years um, to almost a day. And by um, actually being able to screen the genetic code, it allows us to find underlying genetic causes um, for our patients and start treatment often before um, they actually get sick. And a really good example of how this has been brought into the health service recently is that um, we all know about the National Newborn Screening Program um, for many diseases. And in September last year, um, for the first time, the UK NHS started screening for a very severe immune problem called SCID or Severe Combined Immunodeficiency. 
And uh, Manchester was lucky enough to be one of the hubs um, supporting this national pilot service. And actually we picked up the first little boy um, who was a month or so old with skid before he developed any disease. Um, and he's since had a bone marrow transplant and been cured from a disease that previously, before there was this kind of treatment, all children would have died. So genetic diagnosis is one thing that is really exciting, is developing and will continue to develop. There are other developments in terms of immune therapies. So I mentioned bone marrow transplant treatment, which everyone, it is a major treatment and um, people, the, the prognosis after bone marrow transplant was closer to 70%. It's now up to 95% for many patients um, if they're well coming into transplant and there's a good match. But there are a whole lot of other treatments that are coming onto the market that I've been involved in supporting. And one of them is an antibody treatment, Dupilumab, um, which is now available in the UK and lots of other parts of the world. And it's a new treatment for children with severe eczema. And eczema, most people think of eczema as just an itchy rash, but just think if you've got an itchy rash the whole time, then you're not going to be able to sleep. If you're a young child, you're going to keep your parents up all night. They're not going to be able to sleep. Everyone is going to be really depressed. Um, some parents have to give up work. Um, and this treatment has actually revolutionized um, the care for patients with um, severe eczema. And there are a number of other new, what we call biologics um, on the market. And then another aspect which I alluded to before, which you picked up on, was thinking about um, the management of allergies in a different way. Um, until recently, we've thought the best way to manage allergies is avoidance of the food. And for some patients, that's still the case. Um, but for others, um, the best management is actually to introduce small amounts of the food that the child tolerates and build up their tolerance and therefore help to prevent them reacting accidentally when they go out um, to restaurants or to friends' places or, or to parties. So our thinking about um, allergy and our treatments for immune problems are changing and continue to change and it's a very exciting time um, for everyone in the field and also for our patients. Thank you for this. And may I just say, um, regarding the Amy Drew story, it's quite often the patients and patient advocates that make a great difference in moving things forward and uh, making real changes or driving real changes uh, in patient care. Uh, and of course, uh, the treatment that you mentioned on eczema it's, uh, it's kind of a life-changing treatment and elevating the quality of life of the patient. So this is indeed great progress. So discussing a bit more about allergies, uh, they are becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, the World Allergy Organization estimated that up to 40% of the country's population 
uh, has an allergy. What do you think could be the leading causes behind this level of prevalence? For example, could something like climate change be responsible for the increased number of individuals with allergies? Okay, so great question. And um, as you suggest, allergies have indeed become more common, um, particularly since I started as a specialist about 20 years ago. Um, so, for instance, when I started, um, we had a clinic once a month and we were lucky to get one or two patients being referred to the clinic. Um, in Manchester and in many other centres, um, we now have over 10 clinics a week and with a waiting list of six months or more. So um, allergy, particularly children's allergy, also allergy in adults, is becoming more common and it's really becoming more and more difficult for doctors in the field to keep up with the demand and the workload. So you ask um, what's driving this? Um, is it climate change? Uh, I put it to you that rather than climate change, it's more likely to be lifestyle changes um, that have been in the heart of the allergy pandemic. Um, particularly over the last 20 years, people um, with computers are now sitting more at home. Um, they're going out less, they're um, playing less sport, they're getting less mucky. Um, outside. Um, and this is part of the urbanisation theory, um, which suggests that a lack of interaction with the dirt and, and um, the muck outside um, may be promoting allergies. The other major factor that, to my mind, has led or helped to lead to the pandemic in food allergies is actually um, young parents' vision in terms of how to wean their children. Um, until quite recently, um, most parents were told not to wean their children onto certain foods during infancy and early childhood. And for instance, peanut and peanut containing foods in the Western world, um, parents were told to wait until they were around five. And the problem with that, as we now know, um, is that if you delay the introduction of certain foods, then children do not learn how to become tolerant to those foods and become allergic. And the case in point is really a seminal study that was published by Professor Gideon Lack and his team from London called the LEAP study. Um, which was published seven years ago, um, and LEAP stands for learning early about peanuts. And what he did is he um, got two groups of children. One group, he asked the parents to avoid peanut or peanut-containing foods, and the other group, he asked them to introduce peanut butter and peanut snacks, obviously not peanuts themselves that the child could choke on, at an early age, around six months of age. And he found that the group um, of parents who introduced their children to peanuts earlier had a much reduced risk of peanut allergy than those that avoided it. And what we're trying to do now based on these findings is um, make sure that parents know 
um, the results of this amazing study um, and introduce foods earlier rather than later. So to give children the best chance of becoming tolerant to foods rather than um, to actually develop allergies. Thank you. So given the lifestyle factor combined with the insights that we acquire uh, over the years regarding things like uh, peanut allergy and uh, weaning etc how do you think allergies will develop in the future and what burden will this potentially have on healthcare around the world but also here in the UK okay so again a great question um a few observations if i may Um, the world is becoming more cosmopolitan. And as such, it's good because um, our diet and our cuisine and the restaurants are serving much yummier food. Um, But the other complicating factor is that we're being exposed to a whole lot of different foods that we weren't previously exposed to. So um, we all know that um, in the Western world, um, foods like nuts and fish and milk and egg and wheat um, are the most common food allergies. But actually, recently, we're finding that there's a whole lot of new kids on the block, so to say. And last year, we presented at the um, National British Society for Allergy and Clinical Immunology meeting, two new kids on the block that we've picked up in the Northwest. One is kiwi allergy and the other one is lentil allergy. And these are foods that um, previously weren't thought to be common, but um, with changes in diet um, and um, ethnic groups coming in um, to different parts of the UK um, with different cuisines, Um, we're seeing different allergies. I suppose that's one observation. The other observation is that um, when I was young growing up, if you're invited out, you ate everything that your host put on your plate. Um, Now many of us have refined our diets and what we want to eat, and that's fine um, if it doesn't compromise our nutrition. But um, if we suddenly change Um, our diet and we decide that we're not going to go on such a weight restricting diet or whatever and we don't mind anymore and we start eating new foods then we can develop new allergies and I've seen um, um, patients who have previously been avoiding foods who um, then decide that they don't mind eating the food and then are intolerant to the food because they've been avoiding it for so long and are struggling to introduce it because of allergy symptoms. Um, So there are sort of two observations. There's a suggestion that with the latest media on the LEAP study and informing um, young parents that they should be introducing foods earlier in the weaning uh, process, there's some suggestion that um, the food allergy epidemic Um, may be peaking and possibly coming down. But I think we'll have to wait and see because it's still early days. 
Well, this sounds like a good news if um, we know enough now to prevent maybe food allergies. And it's interesting how having a more varied diet uh, might help prevent the development of allergies or restricting foods might build up an allergy. So I want to move on to immunodeficiencies now, which you are particularly interested in in your research. And to put it crudely, there are two different types of immunodeficiencies, primary, which relates to inherited disorders, and secondary, which are acquired. Uh, which one do you see more in your clinic or which type do you see more in your clinic? And how does the management differ in each one? So um, because I run a children's immune uh, deficiency service. Um, our bread and butter are the children that have inherited immune problems, i.e. primary immunodeficiency. Um, some of them are quite mild and, as I mentioned earlier, some of them can be really severe and life-threatening and, if not treated properly, can lead to the death of the child even in the first year of life, such as severe combined immunodeficiency. So the management varies a lot depending on the patient. Many may just need some extra vaccinations or um, a low dose of an antibiotic. Um, some may need a bone marrow transplant or more complicated treatment like antibody replacement treatment. So that's the primary immunodeficiencies. The secondary immunodeficiencies um, we see um, because we work in a multidisciplinary team and um, some of our colleagues are oncologists treating children with cancer and using chemotherapy and the chemotherapy may suppress the child's immune system and some of our colleagues um, work with um, to treat children who have inflammation in their bowel, inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis and use immunosuppressants. For most of those patients, um, they don't have major problems with their immunity and um, they're mainly looked after by the consultant gastroenterologist or rheumatologist. But there's some where the immune deficiency is more profound um, or more persistent. And in those, um, they come our way and we get asked about them, particularly if they've got unusual infections. Interestingly, in some of those patients, they have an underlying genetic cause. So although um, the trigger might have been a drug to suppress the immune system or chemotherapy, actually it's brought out a genetic predisposition um, to the child or the patient having an immune problem. And that's the challenge and the interest of um, treating these patients um, in our clinic and also on the wards. Thank you. And uh, you have discovered new immune diseases uh, during your research that are associated with the propensity to viruses and bacteria, uh, particularly the Epstein-Barr virus and Staphylococcus aureus. Would you be able to describe the key findings of your research and how this might impact the approaches to treatment? Okay. Um, so... I've talked a bit about um, the Epstein-Barr virus, the glandular fever virus that um, um, is um, patients with CTPS1 deficiency are prone to. Um, one of my main um, aspects of research that I'm doing at the moment 
relates to the Staphylococcus bacteria. Um, and in that regard, my interest really is that um, Staphylococcus is a common skin bacteria, lives on the skin. Another name for it is Golden Staph. And it's one of the key triggers for children with eczema. And over the years, I've been working with um, Joe Pennock um, in the Lydia Becker Institute of Inflammation, um, Immunology and Inflammation to try and work out what it is about this bacteria which is totally unique um, because it seems like it's this bacteria only that actually triggers um, the allergic response in the skin and um, the eczema in many patients. And um, a few years ago, after about a decade of working on the topic, we discovered um, that the Staphylococcus aureus bacteria produces a unique protein called SBBI, which is unique to staph and not produced by any other bacteria. And that is the key protein that actually triggers the allergic response in eczema. And what we're doing at the moment, and we've got two large grants to look at it, is that other bacteria on the skin, other than Staphylococcus aureus, actually suppress um, this SBI protein um, and prevent um, the Staphylococcus aureus triggering the eczema. And what we're doing at the moment is trying to work out what specific factors produced by other um, bacteria on what we call the skin microbiome are important um, in suppressing um, the um, eczema response of staph. So it's a bit like um, there was a Chinese military general called Sun Tzu um, who lived about 2,500 years ago who wrote, um, if you neither know your enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. If you know yourself but not your enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. But if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. And I suppose the focus, the message from that um, regarding my research is that you not only need to understand eczema from the patient's point of view and what's going on there, but you also need to understand the enemy, which in this case is the bacteria and understanding exactly um, what it is in their armamentarium that is so powerful. If you can neutralize it, then um, you've at least partly won that battle. That is a great quote. And may I just say the microbiome seems to come up uh... In every discipline, it be it's becoming an increasingly key player in across many medical disciplines. It's, uh, it seems to be important. Uh, what would you say are the biggest challenges in investigating and treating novel and life-threatening immune diseases in children? Great question. Um, so it depends where you work. I work at Royal Manchester Children's Hospital. And it's one of the largest standalone children's hospitals in the UK and Europe. And as such, we see children from um, many backgrounds, from around not only Manchester, but the Northwest and further afield. 
and some with really rare conditions and sometimes completely new diseases. Now medicine is moving towards um, the fact that doctors everywhere are increasingly being pushed into practicing evidence-based medicine. And the problem we've got for these rare conditions or particularly conditions where they haven't been described before is there is no evidence. And therefore, the routinely available tests that are um, run by the hospital lab um, are no use. And the treatments, we don't have any treatment for it. So we're getting stuck. And the challenge, particularly for um, people trying to manage or doctors trying to manage these really rare or new diseases, is to cut through the bureaucratic healthcare system, the red tape that stands between effectively treating these patients um, with treatments where you have to base it on the science, the scientific basis of disease, rather than um, the evidence, which is actually not available. Um, and therefore, I think that is one of the main challenges we're facing. And to try any new medicine or to sometimes get a new test done, we need to fill out so many forms. Sometimes um, we still get denied the um, test or the treatment. Um, and if we're unable to investigate and treat these patients, then we're never going to get any further if we uh, come across another patient with the same disease or someone else comes across um, a patient with that disease because um, we've not been able to try things. Obviously, it needs to be within reason. Um, there needs to be some basis for trying new treatments or, or um, investigating in a certain way. But um, it's a balance between looking at the, the art of medicine and the science of medicine and going back, if you need to, to first principles. And certainly in immunology, um, we're often having to go back to first principles to effectively treat our patients and investigate our patients. Yes, that does sound very challenging. And it sounds like you almost have to gather the evidence um, with every patient that you treat. So. Uh, I can understand uh, how difficult this must be. And now I want to move on to another topic, which is that we've recently observed spikes in certain infections that have made the news. For example, hepatitis of unknown etiology in children. And there was a recent surge in monkeypox, uh, which the WHO declared as a global emergency. Do you think these are a manifestation of how the pandemic and social distancing could have maybe affected our immunity? Um, there will always be um, an interaction between the microbe um, and us human beings. And actually, um, there have always been um, pandemics and microbes with um, they've been around for three billion years, three billion years longer than us. So they're always a step ahead in terms of finding niches um, to infect and invade. 
And um, I suppose with time, human beings have learned to um, become immune to these um, microbes. But if we isolate, then we sometimes lose immunity. And one of the examples recently um, is the spate of um, hepatitis, liver inflammation in young children. Um, and there was some suggestion now, which research has suggested that it's because young children are not exposed to certain viruses, including adenovirus, um, when they're very young, and exposure at a later age may lead to more inflammation. So yes, um, changes in behaviour not only affects um, the prevalence of allergy, as we've discussed, um, but also um, um, affects the prevalence of certain um, infectious diseases, as with the example I've just given with um, um, infantile or, or paediatric hepatitis. Thank you for this. And now I want to look back at your career and ask you, what do you think is the most defining moment of your career so far? Okay, well, um, I think I need to go back um, to what we discussed before. Um, I never met Amy Drew, um, that little five-year-old girl who died in 1997 of the rare immune disease CTPS1 deficiency that led to a fatal lymphoma. However, meeting and engaging with Amy's parents, Suzanne and Ian, um, not once, but um, regularly over the last 20 years has been, as far as I'm concerned, the defining moment and inspirational. Um, they are a rare breed of human being um, it's not many who can turn the tragedy of losing a child, um, not to anger and despair, um, but into fighting for a cause that's helped to treat and cure other little girls and boys with similar immune and allergic diseases. Um, I view medicine not as a job. Um, it's a lifetime commitment to work in partnership um, not only with your colleagues, but also with your patients and their families um, in order to ensure that we all live life to the fullest. And um, in answer to your question, defining moment is definitely interaction um, with my patients um, and learning from them just as much, I hope, I can contribute uh, to their health and life. Thank you for these words. Uh, they're greatly inspiring. I'm sure very inspiring to our listeners as well and a very noble aspiration uh, for becoming a doctor. Um, and I have one last question for you, which we ask every guest. Uh, if a magic genie granted you three wishes in healthcare, what would they be? <laughs> okay, so, um, and that's a good question. Um, it reminds me that I used to watch a children's television program when I was growing up in Australia, and that was I Dream of Genie. I think the, the spelling's slightly different. Um, but in terms of 
three wishes for better health care. Um, I suppose the first one is that people want to be able to predict their future. And as doctors, we're expected um, to help patients predict um, their future health um, and what may happen if they've got a particular disease. And um, this wish is already being partly granted, as I mentioned, with the new technology that's coming in um, in genomics and genetics, new generation sequencing. It's allowing us um, to help patients understand and predict um, their inherent human strengths and weaknesses through variations in their genetic code. It may not be for all of us. Some of us may not want to know what our future holds. Um, but for some, um, this is not future um, te futuristic technology. It's here now and it will develop and become a greater part of our lives and our NHS. So that's um, the first dream in terms of predicting the, the future. Um, the second dream is that there's a song that we all know titled Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Um, and I can tell you that the same applies to boys as well as girls. Um, but for doctors, this sometimes creates conflicts of interest as fun is not, does not always equate with living healthy lives. And sometimes actually fun actually causes directly causes disease. Um, so medicine's here to help patients understand how to live healthier lives um, in terms of their diet and their lifestyle and trying to avoid drugs and too much alcohol and smoking and coping with the stresses of everyday life. So if anything, my second wish um, to your genie is to ask um, how we as healthcare professionals can advise our patients more effectively. Um, as to me, um, I feel that often patients are not listening quite as well as they might to what I have to say and go about um, doing what they want anyway. Um, but I suppose the third wish is that life's obviously a balance. Um, it's not for doctors to take the fun out of life. In fact, um, we're supposed to be helping people put the zest back into their lives. Um, but um, our time in this world is finite um, and some of us have our lives cut short. Some of us are lucky to live longer and prosper. Um, but my third wish, maybe it's not for your genie, um, but I used to watch another television program as well as I Dream of Genie, and that was my favourite Martian. Um, and there was a quote from this program that I watched over 50 years ago that stuck in my mind. Um, and it goes that it's not sad that we grow old, but if the years are not used... Um, life will always be too short for all of us. Um, doctors 
might grant a little extra time, um, but we can't provide immortality. And therefore, I suppose the third wish for all of us is to know how to live life to the fullest. And not only that, but um, to help others to live life to the fullest as well. And I think if we do that, um, we're doing pretty well. Thank you, Peter. Uh, great wishes. And may I just say that I do remember I Dream of Jeannie. I used to watch it too. It was a great program. And I love how in your first wish you combined magical elements, which is predicting the future, with actual science available today and saying, well, predicting the future might be here and available for us, which is great. I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this episode of the EMJ podcast. I would like to thank you, Peter, for taking the time to talk with me today and for sharing your insights into the world of pediatric allergy and immunology. It really has been a pleasure to speak with you. It's been a pleasure and good fun. Join us in our next episode where our regular host, Jonathan, will be back on for another exploration into the world of healthcare. Until next time, I'm Evgenia Kutsuki and thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Mm-hmm.